Hello, I'm Timothy. I teach about apologetics and I play electric guitar. And I once broke my arm while trying to get a rock out of my shoe. And I'm Garrick, and I have the power of Grayskull. Well, you may not be aware of this, but crucifixion in the ancient world was so despised that the very words crucify and cross were vulgar words that weren't spoken in polite company. So how did an entire faith emerge that centered on a crucified Savior? That's the question that we'll be exploring today in the Three Chords segment of the program. And then, in the second half, we'll go looking for truth in a song that Jimi Hendrix played at Woodstock. If you enjoy history, apologetics, or rock and roll, today's episode is for you. Welcome to Three Chords and the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. I'm Timothy Paul Jones. Each week, my co-host Garrick Bailey and I tackle an issue related to one of three topics, the reliability of the Gospels, racial reconciliation, or the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then we go looking for divine truth in a moment from the history of rock and roll. Thank you for joining us today on Three Chords and the Truth, where we defend the faith, do justice, and dig for truth in rock and roll. Garrick Bailey here. Timothy, I have a question for you. You recently graduated your oldest child from college. How do you feel about that? I feel numb at this point. Uh, it's not something that I, it's really sunk in yet that, my goodness, after all these years, this child that we adopted at seven years old is actually done with college. I'm really, really proud of her as well. I won't deny that I just feel the sense of really proud of her. She started out when we adopted her way behind in every area, had gone through a lot of really difficult things in her life and foster care and things like that. There was no chance from anybody's perspective that she would ever graduate from college, and she did it. And so a little bit numb and a little bit proud, a lot of bit proud. So we've talked in the past about how one of our passions as it relates to apologetics is the preparing of students, whether it's high school students for college or college students for graduating and entering the real world, to understand not only what they believe, but why they believe it and how to communicate that to others or defend it if necessary. So on the other side of graduation, how do you feel you did there with number one? Well, reflecting on that, I think one of the things I did really well is to encourage her to question her faith and to talk to me about her questions. And so that's that's the thing that I think with, with our oldest that I did really, really well. What I'm realizing with our second, third, and fourth children that I'm trying to do better is not merely to have a sort of a passive capacity to when you have a question, make sure and raise that question, no matter how tough the question is or how much it may seem like you're questioning God, go ahead and ask the question. So that's what we did well. But I want to be more intentional. I'm trying to be more intentional about actually reading books with our younger children that actually strengthen their faith and help them to raise the questions before they have the questions naturally. So to read books with them about the resurrection of Jesus, about the nature of, of Jesus, to help them understand things like his divinity and humanity, some things like that. Those are things that I've been much more intentional about that I wasn't with our oldest. So some things I did well, ask the questions, even the hard 
hard questions. What I want to do better and I'm trying to do better with our second, third, and fourth children is to be more intentional about actually reading some things with them to help them think through these issues ahead of time. Well, I look forward to having those conversations on this podcast in the future for all of those out there who may be listening who are disciplers of children in whatever capacity. But today, Timothy and I will be talking about the crucifixion and the cross in the ancient world. So first question, Timothy, is how did people in the ancient world perceive the practice of crucifixion. Well, one of the things that's interesting that many people are unaware of is beginning at least as early as the third century BC, the very word crucify and the word crucifixion, those were vulgar terms. Those were bad words. In fact, you can find a particular Latin text in which a Roman prostitute says to a client who has treated her badly, go get yourself crucified. And that was about the most vulgar thing that she could say was that. So the very terms, crucify, crucifixion, cross, were vulgar terms. We find some of the evidence for that is the substitute words that they would use for that. One of the ways you know that something was a bad word in a particular context is how many substitute words there are for it. We have that in our own culture. You can think of any bad word that we have. There are a lot of substitutes. Well, for the words crucify, crucifixion, cross, there were a lot of substitute words. The extreme penalty, the criminal beam, there were all these different terms that they used to avoid even saying the words cross or crucify. And so it's no wonder, as we look at the second century, that we see people, they referred to those who worshipped a crucified Savior, that is Christians, they referred to their beliefs, their religion, as foolishness, as insanity, as idiocy. That's what we see in the second, third, even into the fourth centuries. And one of the earliest graphical descriptions of Christianity is a scrap of late second Second, maybe early third century graffiti that was uncovered in Rome in a palace where slaves were trained to serve the imperial family. And in this bit of graffiti, and yes, even in the ancient world, they had vulgar graffiti, just as we do today. But in this particular bit of graffiti, there's a man with the head of an ass who's hanging from a cross. And at the foot of the cross, you have somebody kneeling there, and he's surrounded by these rough scrawled words, Alexamenes Sebetetheon, which is is to say Alexamenos worships God, and the word for worships is actually in Greek misspelled. So they even misspelled their graffiti back then. It is apparently making fun of someone who had become a Christian, maybe a servant in training to serve Caesar, and, and somebody named Alexamenos worshipped Jesus. Somebody named Alexamenos was, was a Christian, and it was mocking this person because he had embraced this new religion, this faith that is centered on a deity who had suffered the punishment for humanity's sin on a cross. I've heard preachers today compare the crucifixion in the ancient world to the electric chair today. Does this analogy work? 
it works and yet it doesn't work. And I think it doesn't work more than it works. And I think what preachers are trying to do when they do that is they're trying to move us away from the idea of the cross as a decoration. And I understand that. And I get that. You know, they'll say things to the effect of, you know, you might wear a cross as a, on a necklace or on your earrings, but would you do that with an electric chair? No. And they're trying to help us understand that the cross was an instrument of execution in the ancient world. And that's true and that's good, but there are a lot of things that they're missing in that as well. And I think we ought to be aware of those. The electric chair is, is horrible, but it is clean, it is clinical, it is organized. But crucifixion was none of those. Crucifixion was brutal and vulgar and vile. I, I think of what Seneca, writing sometime in the first century, had to say when he described what he saw at a crucifixion. He said, I see the stakes there, not of one kind, but of many. Some victims are placed head down. Some have spikes driven through their genitals. Others have their arms stretched out on the gibbet. And he goes on to describe just how awful crucifixion was. I think the better analogy for what crucifixion was like in the ancient world was lynching. I think of the lynching of African Americans in which at least 5,000 African Americans from the late 19th into the early 20th century were lynched in these horrible ways that, that, that sometimes the variations in that were done for the pleasure, for the vile pleasure of those who were watching this. And these were executions carried out publicly and abusively by those in power to terrorize those who were not in power. And that's a far closer analogy to crucifixion than the electric chair is the lynching that happened that we saw in, in America in the late 19th and into the 20th century, well into the 20th century, sadly, is a much closer analogy to what the crucifixion was. Yeah, the way I see it, if you walk up to me, if two people walk up to me with t-shirts on and one has an electric chair on the t-shirt, one has a depiction of a lynching, both were forms of execution, but only one of these is truly shameful and offensive. And that's what the cross was. According to the New Testament Gospels, the body of Jesus was buried in a tomb and raised on the third day. And yet, according to some scholars, the body of Jesus wasn't buried at all. John Dominic Crossan, for example, is a biblical scholar who makes this claim. He says, quote, in normal circumstances, the soldiers guarded the body of the crucified criminal until death, and thereafter it was left for crows, scavenger dogs, or other wild beasts to finish the brutal job. So there is, according to Crossan, no reason to think that Jesus' body did not face the same fate. So if John Dominic Crossan is correct, the body of Jesus was, wasn't buried at all, but it was eaten by birds and dogs. Is there evidence for his claim? Well, I want to first recognize the parts of this that he's correct on. There are some parts of this on which he is correct. So he's right that the shame of crucifixion, it ran far deeper than the nakedness, the torture, the taunting. In most cases, the crucified bodies were not 
even buried. So if we go to the Roman historian Suetonius, we find that he says the vultures will quickly take care of his burial. Speaking of how that the vultures would consume the body of this crucified criminal. And there is a heel bone that has been unearthed in, in archaeology that was preserved in a bone box or an ossuary. That is to say, in Jewish tradition, the body would rot away, then they would take the bones and put it in this ossuary, a bone box. And uh, the name of the individual in there was Yahuanan or John, and he was a Jew, and this he had a spike in his heel. And that's the only physical remains that there are from the ancient world that I know of anyway, of somebody who was crucified. And so according to John Dominic Crossan and others, the reason that all we have is that one heel bone surviving with the spike in it is because the others were simply left on the crosses or were thrown into a group grave and consumed by vultures, by wild beasts. And so according to him was Jesus. So that's what he's claiming is that that's what happened to the body of Jesus, and then Christians later began fabricating stories to deal with their pain and their loss, and there was no body to be found because the body had been consumed by vultures and wild animals. But there are a lot of problems with what Crossan is saying and others are saying there as well. So I think three really quick problems with their claims that that happened to Jesus. First off, the Jews in particular were very conscientious about burying their dead. We've got to remember that. If we go to the Temple Scroll from the Dead Sea Scrolls at Qumran, there's a command in there, you shall not allow bodies to remain on a tree overnight. Most assuredly, you shall bury them even on the very day of their death. We've got that also in the Jewish historian from the first century, Josephus. He says, Jews are so conscientious about their burial practices, so much so that even criminals sentenced to crucifixion are removed and buried before the sun sets. Jews must never leave a corpse unburied. And this is because of actually a law in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 20, one that says bodies must be buried. And so Jews felt divinely compelled to bury their dead. So that's one problem with what John Dominic Crossan is saying. A second problem is would the Romans have allowed the body to be buried? We have to ask that question. Would the Romans have allowed that? What we find if we actually look at Roman law, if we actually look at the text preserved in the digest of Emperor Justinian about Roman law that recorded Roman law over several centuries, it says that the bodies of those condemned to death should not be refused to their relatives. And it says Caesar Augustus, the divine, said that this rule had been observed. And so what we find is Roman law actually allowed for bodies to be taken by family, friends, close associates, and buried. And so we find that that would not have been out of character for the Romans to allow precisely what's described in the Gospels, which is to ask for the body of Jesus and it to be granted to them. But the other thing is that simply because the only physical remain that can be identified as crucified, that heel bone I talked about, simply because that's the only physical remain we have, doesn't mean it's the only one. You see, it seems like that the reason that spike remains in that heel is because it was wedged in such a way that it couldn't be removed. And it's very likely that Jewish families who did reclaim the bodies would have removed the spike from them, would have removed the evidence of crucifixion from them, and that there may have been others that were crucified, but it's not clear that they were because the evidence had been removed of that. So we may disagree necessarily with Crossan's conclusion, but can we agree that Bonebox would be an excellent name for a heavy metal band? 
it would be an amazing heavy metal band or ossuary that would be a great heavy metal band name i'm gonna write that one down last question how do the perceptions and practices of crucifixion in the ancient world support what we read in the new testament gospels well i think what we have to ask when we hear all these things and recognize how awful and vulgar crucifixion was, one of the things we must ask is, would anybody have fabricated this? You have to ask that, how would anybody have fabricated a religion based on somebody who had been crucified with how vulgar and awful crucifixion was considered to be? And that, to me, is one of the strongest evidences for the Christian faith, is the fact that it would be difficult to imagine that somebody would fabricate this unless, of course, something really amazing had happened after the crucifixion. In fact, something supernaturally amazing, something as amazing as resurrection. Rock and roll, it's one of the greatest human inventions ever, and it's one of the supreme expressions of God's common grace. The way we see it, the golden age of this invention began with Bob Dylan and ended with Pearl Jam. And that's why, each week in the second half of the program, Garrick and I review one of our favorite songs and go digging for truth in classic rock. I'm Garrick from the 80s. And I'm Timothy from the 1970s. And today we're going to look at one of the most iconic guitar solos ever recorded from one of the most famous concerts ever. It's Jimi Hendrix's performance of the Star Spangled Banner at Woodstock. So since we'll be talking about this concert today, what was your most amazing concert experience ever? That is really hard to answer because of just the wide variety of concerts, but I probably have to go with seeing U2 on the Zeropa tour in the Cotton Bowl. I couldn't tell you what year. It was late high school, so this would have been 96, 97, somewhere around there. There was just so much energy, and uh, U2, I'd been waiting so long to see U2, and another one of my favorite bands, Rage Against the Machine, opened for them. So it was for that one, it was a, a tough one to beat. A close second would probably be for my 11th or 13th birthday. I can't remember which. I saw Pearl Jam at Moody Coliseum on the SMU campus during their Versus tour. And for that one, I got to both sit side stage and got to go backstage where I hoped to meet Eddie Vedder, but apparently he had on stage had too much to drink that evening and never made it backstage. Well, my favorite concert that I've ever seen ever is probably U2's Joshua Tree Tour. It was just absolutely an amazing experience in that, which I didn't see until just a couple of years ago. I did not grow up going to real concerts because that was evil and satanic in the fundamentalist churches in which I was, my family was involved. So actually, my first concert experience was certainly not that, but uh, when I was about, I was 17 or 18, and Jeff Moore and The Distance, which is a Christian band, were performing at an outdoor 
concert in that would have been about 1991. And and I think about that outdoor rock festival that I went to, which was very mild by rock festival standards, obviously, uh, was a Christian rock festival. That was the first time I ever went to a concert. I think about that, how much that had in common with and drew from this sort of template that was set by Woodstock, this idea of all these bands outdoors playing all day and all those things like that. And this idea of an outdoor rock festival, it kind of emerges after World War II with increased mobility and the post-war economic boom. And you have folk festivals and jazz festivals, and eventually you have pop and rock festivals. Many of which I went to growing up in the Dallas area, uh, festival all day concerts like Edgefest and Lollapalooza and whatnot. But the most iconic of them all, which happened before our time, obviously, was Woodstock. But Woodstock was not the original name of that festival, was it? No, it wasn't. It was the Aquarian Exposition, which of course comes from this idea that we've talked about before on this program of the Age of Aquarius, this time that would supposedly bring peace and deeper consciousness. And we we see in this whole idea of the Age of Aquarius, this human longing to go back to the garden, we might say, instead of forward to the city. That is to say, back to some sort of an earlier, primitive, supposed time when people were innocent, all of that. And uh, we see that in Johnny Mitchell's song about Woodstock that was covered by Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. I came upon a child of God walking along the road. I'm going to join in a rock and roll band. I'm going to camp out on the land. I'm going to try and get my soul free. We are stardust. We are golden. And we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. This very clear longing to go back to the garden. And in this, there's what we might call a primitivism that they're seeking of going back to some earlier stage of humanity in which supposedly everything was innocent and good. So what we see so clearly here is that Every human soul knows that there was a time of innocence in the past. There's a sense in which we all know that there was a Garden of Eden. And the problem is, and this is humanity's story all the way from the beginning, from when Adam and Eve first sinned, is that we try to recover this innocence by going backwards in our own power. And yet the truth is, is that there is no recovering in our own power what we lost in the Garden of Eden, because for there to be restoration, there must first be redemption, dealing with our sin and our rebellion, which is, of course, what Jesus did through the cross. And there's a sense in which much of the hippie movement of the 1960s was sort of this looking for a restoration of the Garden of Eden through primitivism, we might say, or what's even called sometimes anarcho-primitivism. And we see that so clearly in this advertisement for Woodstock, at which we're both looking right now. Part of the advertisement in Ramparts Magazine for Woodstock said this, walk around for three days without seeing a skyscraper or a traffic light, fly a kite, sun yourself, breathe unspoiled air. And you see that primitivism, that longing to go back to the garden so clearly there. And not many people knew that at Woodstock that there were basically breakout sessions. There was plenty of workshops. You could learn to play guitar or put beads together, write poetry, molding clay. There's 
uh, all types of things you could. It was also an educational experience, if you it will. It was, and in, in more ways than one, probably. And I will simply leave this one for people to take it however they will. It says in this advertisement, there will be Cokes and hot dogs and dozens of curious food and fruit combinations to experiment with. Who knew that it was all about food and fruit? <laughs> So it's not surprising that the song from Woodstock that we're looking at today is at least in part an expression of protest. An expression, though, that lacked words and was simply a protest through music. Yeah, before looking at the song itself, let's just briefly consider biblically this idea of protest, okay? Protest is an outcry or a lament that happens when there's a dissonance between the way our heart believes things ought to be and the way they actually are. And if the disposition of our hearts is shaped by God's truth, protest can be holy and prophetic. We see protest in Habakkuk chapter 1, where the prophet cries out, how long, O Lord, must I cry to you about injustice? We see it in Revelation 6, where the souls under the altar, slaughtered for the word of God and their witness, cry out with a loud voice, O Lord, holy and true, how long until you judge the earth? And there's enough of God's justice engraved on every human heart that even unbelievers feel at least a little bit of this dissonance between the way things ought to be and the way things are, and even unbelievers at times protest. And sometimes, sometimes that protest is right. And there's a long tradition of protest through music. And in the Western tradition, this protest has often happened through folk music. I think one of the most powerful folk music protests is a song by Lewis Allen called Strange Fruit that Billie Holiday began performing in the late 1930s. And what this song, Strange Fruit, is about is about the lynchings of African Americans that by this time had gone on for decades. We've got to remember that from the late 19th up until the mid-20th centuries that at least 5,000 African Americans in the United States were lynched. And some of the lyrics of this song, Strange Fruit, were these, Southern trees bear strange fruit. Blood on the leaf, blood at the root, black bodies swinging in the southern breeze. And we've got to remember that for Billie Holiday and others to sing this in the 1930s was an expression of bravery at this point, of standing up and saying that this is wrong. And Strange Fruit is in many ways the cry of souls under the altar of oppression in the shadow of Jim Crow who are calling out, protesting, how long how long will it be this way? So how did protests end up in the music of Jimi Hendrix? Well, we see that Bob Dylan and others, they barely began to bring some of that protest of folk music into rock and roll. Bob Dylan, when he went to folk music, he said, the thing about rock and roll is that for me, it wasn't enough. The songs weren't serious enough. When I got into folk music, the songs are filled with more despair, more sadness, more triumph, more faith in the supernatural, much deeper feelings. And when Dylan returns to rock and roll in 1965, he brings a lot of this seriousness from folk music with him. And that, among other factors, begins to kind of infuse rock and roll with a capacity to protest and a sense of protest against injustice. So what makes Hendrix's version of the Star-Spangled Banner so unique? 
Well, let's imagine the scene for a moment. Hendrix was supposed to take the stage the night before on August 17th. He doesn't take the stage till the next morning, August 18th, and he comes out on stage with a white Fender Stratocaster, white fringed leather jacket, bandana, and there's only about 30,000 people left. There was 400,000 or so originally at Woodstock, but only about 30,000 of those are left by this point. He, he takes the stage with this multi-ethnic band that he calls Gypsy Sun and the Rainbows, and he plays the national anthem, but he does so in a way that's distorted and twisted and filled with feedback. And he makes sounds with his guitar like bombs and guns, and yet it's clearly recognizable still as the national anthem. And it is a protest against much of the injustice that he perceives and sees, I think is probably intended as a protest against the war, a protest against uh, racism. And yet in it, at the same time as it being protest, there's hope and there's confidence. I, I really hear in this, it's at once a tribute to his nation and a protest at what his nation was doing. It's patriotism and protest and black pride all at once. And it's beautiful. What happened to Hendrix after this iconic moment? Well, he finishes the concert and then he goes and he goes backstage and he collapses from exhaustion. And Hendrix never records another studio album. He does one live album, but he doesn't record another studio album. And sadly, about one year later, Jimi Hendrix dies, September 18th, 1970. He dies. He's got alcohol and amphetamines in his system and sleeping pills. He chokes on his own vomit and he dies at 27 years old. And the last words that Jimi Hendrix wrote before before he died were these. He said, the story of Jesus is so easy to explain. After they crucified him, a woman claimed his name. The story of Jesus, the whole Bible knows. He went all across the desert and in the middle he found a rose. The story is written by so many people who dared to lay down the truth to so very many who cared. To carry the cross of Jesus, I wish not to be alone, so I must respect my other heart. The story of Jesus is the story of you and me. No use in feeling lonely, I am searching to be free. The story of life is quicker than the wink of an eye. The story of love is hello and goodbye until we meet again. And so, Jimi Hendrix, absolute sheer guitar genius. It's clear from those, his, his last words that he ever wrote, that there's a spiritual longing and maybe even an interest in what Jesus has to offer. And uh, that some of that you see this spiritual longing and this longing for justice. We see it encapsulated and expressed in the way he played the national anthem as a protest against what he perceived as injustice. And yet, as far as we know, his longings are never fulfilled. He dies never having recognized that the longings for justice he was feeling were ultimately a longing for the God who took the punishment in Christ for humanity's injustice and the God who put that longing for justice even in the soul of Jimi Hendrix. And now, as always, we come to 
the most dangerous portion of Three Chords and the Truth, which is that moment when we draw a question out of the infinity gauntlet. Never forget that this is the moment that if we do this wrongly, if we inadvertently snap while doing so, half of humanity upon the earth will be wiped out. And so once again, Garrick has bravely reached within the Infinity Gauntlet and drawn out one of the great questions of human history. These are questions that have been known to divide families, cause a break in fellowship amongst believers in Christ. But we will venture to discuss such things today on this show. So here we go. Today's question from the Infinity Gauntlet. Which one is better and why? An acceptance letter from Hogwarts or from Charles Xavier's School for the Gifted? Ah, So, we have two different universes here, as always, one of these, of course, being the Harry Potter world, in which if you receive an acceptance letter to Hogwarts, that means you have magical powers, magical capacities. If you receive an acceptance letter or an invitation to Charles Xavier's School for Gifted Youngsters, you are a mutant. And that mutant power is going to be refined and sharpened by Professor X to allow you to be able to utilize that for the good of humanity and the good of mutant humanity as well. Oh, man, I'm going to have to go with Harry Potter at this point and go with Hogwarts, an acceptance letter to Hogwarts being better. And I think the reason I would say that, though this one I'm truly conflicted on, I really am. I would have to say that it seems to me that magic is something that is much more malleable and able to be turned to good or evil according to your personality and still to be able to exist in society in a relatively normal way. Whereas mutant, that whole thing there, there are some pretty bad and bothersome powers that you could end up with as a mutant. I mean, think of Rogue, who can never make physical contact with any other human being or or Cyclops, if he loses his special glasses, he ends up zapping everybody around him with lasers out of his eyes. So I guess I'm going to have to go with Harry Potter on that one and say, I'd rather get an acceptance letter from Hogwarts. I'm still waiting for mine, in fact. I would entirely agree with you, which is odd because my introduction, my early introduction into the comic book world was through X-Men. And so I've, I've read far more X-Men comics than, than any other comic, and it's always been one of my favorites. And up until the last couple of years, I probably would have answered Charles Xavier's school if I could have been Wolverine, right? He was always my favorite. And then I saw Logan and saw what happens to Wolverine in the end and kind of changed my mind. I I think I'd rather die as an old wizard instead of the way that Logan goes out. And so I would agree with you. I think I also even prefer the community of Hogwarts. So today we've looked at the perceptions of crucifixion in the ancient world. We've looked at Jimi Hendrix's Star Spangled Banner, and and now is the time in the show where we give some recommendations, perhaps for further reading, perhaps something on the worldwide webs, things that you can go to and look deeper into 
some of what we've been talking about. Timothy, what do you have for our friends today? Well, I've got two books that I would recommend that you read if you're interested in these topics. One of them is by a German scholar named Martin Hengel. The work is entitled Crucifixion. It's a classic work from back in 1977. And he talks about the perceptions of crucifixion in the ancient world. And one of the things that he states in there, he really makes a strong point about is with its paradoxical contrast between the divine nature of the Son of God and his shameful death on the cross, the first Christian proclamation shattered all analogies and parallels to any Christology which could be produced in the world of the time. And his point in that is that for people to worship a crucified Savior was culturally unthinkable, whether you were Jewish or if you were Gentile, and that something amazing had to happen for people to worship a crucified Savior. Another work that I don't agree with completely, but I would still recommend that people read is by an African-American theologian named James Cone, and the name of the book is The Cross and the Lynching Tree. It's from 2011. And James Cone really demonstrates what I mentioned earlier, which is this parallel between lynching and crucifixion. And one of the things he says in this book is that between 1880 and 1940, white Christians, or at least they claim to be Christians, lynched nearly 5,000 black men and women in a manner with obvious echoes of the Roman crucifixion of Jesus. Yet these Christians, quote-unquote, did not see the irony or contradiction in their actions. The cross placed alongside the lynching tree can help us to see Jesus in America in a new light and thereby empower people who claim to follow him to take a stand against white supremacy and every kind of injustice. And let's remember, this is not ancient or distant history. This is recent history. Just thinking back to 1955, which is in the lifetime of many of our parents or grandparents, the murder of Emmett Till, and going back barely more than a century ago to 1918, to a woman named Mary Turner in Brooks County, Georgia, who was 19 years old and pregnant. She protested the death of her husband, and in response, a white mob hung her upside down from a tree, doused her in gasoline, set her on fire while she was still alive, split open her abdomen and tore out her infant child and stomped her child to death and then riddled her body with bullets. And Mary Turner and her child were cut down and buried near the tree. Now, that which cries out in our souls when we hear this, whether we're a believer or an unbeliever, that which comes out of our souls as we say, that's wrong, that's horrific, that's awful, that's unjust, is a protest, is a protest that recognition of this difference between the way things are and the way things ought to be, and it comes from a recognition of the justice that God himself has engraved on every human soul, a yearning for justice and righteousness. And ultimately, that justice and righteousness is not found in ourselves, but only in the God who can redeem even the awful brokenness of this world and the mess we've made of it and can redeem that and has redeemed that through Jesus Christ, and in Jesus Christ has promised a day when he will make all things right and new. 
Thank you for joining us today. If you want to learn more about the two of us, take a look at threechordsapologetics.com. That's chords with an H, the kind you play on the guitar. While you're at threechordsapologetics.com, be sure to subscribe to this podcast. And if you're interested in learning more about defending the truth of God's Word, take a look at our book, How We Got the Bible. My name is Timothy Paul Jones. My co-host is Garrick Bailey. And we are already looking forward to joining you next time on Three Chords and the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. If you want to dig deeper into apologetics, one great place to start is the book Reasons for Our Hope by Wayne House and Dennis Jowers. The book is Reasons for Our Hope, and you can go to bhacademic.com today to download a free sample chapter.